So last week we looked at the entire Balaam narrative, uh, which comprises chapters 22, 23, 24, and part of 25. And I just kind of zoomed out and gave you an overview of the whole Balaam narrative. If you didn't hear that sermon, you should probably go back and listen to it. It's available online on our website. And you should probably go back at some point and listen to it because we'll be in this Balaam narrative for probably a few more Sunday nights, God willing, and it will help you get a big picture understanding of the narrative as a whole. But suffice it to say, for our purposes tonight, that the basic gist of the narrative is as follows. There is the Moabite king, Balak, who tries to hire Balaam, who is a pagan, basically shaman, to curse Israel. And God sovereignly overrides Balak's desire to curse Israel. And God sovereignly overrides Balaam, the pagan seer's desire for gain from wrongdoing. And though Balak offers Balaam great wealth to curse Israel, God overrides this conspiracy and God speaks through wicked Balaam to actually do the opposite and to bless Israel. Tonight we look at the first of four of Balaam's God-inspired blessings of Israel. And we are in Numbers 23, 7-10, which I just read for you. Now we know that these oracles, as they're called, are, are God-inspired from A, the incompatibility between these blessings and Balaam's wicked heart toward Israel. We know that Balaam actually wanted to curse Israel and collect on the, the reward. We also know that when God overruled that desire and made it impossible for him to curse Israel and collect on the reward, that he devised a different plan to harm Israel and get a reward, namely to send the Moabite women out to seduce the Israelite men. So we know that Balaam really is not a friend or an ally. So these words are not coming from Balaam's heart towards Israel. And it stands to reason that they are coming from the Lord. But B, God had previously instructed Balaam in Numbers 22, verse 35, to speak only the word that I tell you. And so it also stands to reason that Balaam is now speaking the word that the Lord told him. And C, in Numbers 24 and verse 2, at the beginning of the third oracle, we read this. The Spirit of God came upon Balaam, and he took up his discourse and said, etc., etc. So for these reasons, we have good grounds to say that Balaam is speaking the inspired, the Spirit-inspired words of God, blessings over the people of Israel. So with that in mind, what does God say through Balaam? about Israel in Balaam's first oracle. And bear in mind, we're not going to rehash what we already covered last week about Balaam not being able to curse those God has blessed in verses 7 and 8. We'll just cover new material. So, what does God say through Balaam about Israel in Balaam's first oracle? First, God says that Israel is not to be counted 
among the nations. Look at Numbers 23.9. A people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Now technically here, the grammar tells us merely that Israel, in fact, does not count itself among the nations. But why? Why does Israel not count itself among the nations? It is because God has said to them that they are unique among the nations. We could go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 to substantiate this claim. Where Moses says to the people of Israel, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Moses probably spoke these words around the same time as the Balaam narrative is taking place. Because remember, they're looking upon the people of Israel, but they're not in the exact same place. So we actually get two concurrent histories. The book of Deuteronomy is basically taking place more or less at this same time. So as Moses is speaking the words of Deuteronomy, Balaam is up on a mountain somewhere blessing Israel. Alright? So Moses probably spoke these words in Deuteronomy 7-6 around the same time as the Balaam narrative takes place. But for the removal of any doubt about whether the Israelites already knew that they were a unique chosen people from among the nations. We could go back I mean, we can go back all the way to Abraham. But let me just go back, say, to Exodus 15. After the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. And Moses says in, a, in the context of a song of praise to the Lord, You have led in steadfast love the people you have redeemed. Singular. The people you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples, plural, that's the rest of the nations, have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan melt away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. What is the clear implication of this statement in Exodus 15? It's that God has uniquely, particularly, peculiarly chosen Israel to be unique among the nations. Did God choose Egypt and treat Egypt the same way that He chose the Israelites? Well, sure, he chose Israel, but he chose Egypt too, somebody said. No. <laughs> Go back and read the Ten Plagues narrative. In fact, God makes it explicit on several occasions that you may know that I make a distinction between my people and the people of Egypt. This is going to happen in Egypt, but not in Goshen. Right? No, God didn't choose Israel and Egypt. Did God choose Philistia? Did God choose Edom? Did God choose Moab? No, no, no. Did God choose the Canaanites? No. Israel is not just one nation among many. 
But as Balaam says in Numbers 23, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Israel is, in a very real sense, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. They are chosen, peculiarly chosen. It's not like God chose them and the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Philistines and so on. So they are uniquely, particularly, peculiarly chosen. This is what it means when they are people dwelling alone, not counting itself among the nations. And what has Israel been chosen for? What destiny has Israel been singled out for? As Moses says in Exodus 15, which I read for you already, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Sometimes to be chosen and to be singled out is not a good thing. Like if it's choosing a prisoner at random to be executed or something like this. But in this case, Israel has not been chosen for something bad, but for something good. For blessedness, the people of Israel have been singled out from among the nations. To be planted on Mount Zion and to dwell with God. For blessedness, the people of Israel have been singled out from among the nations. Which brings us to our second point, which is this. God says through Balaam that to be a partaker of the fate of Israel is a blessed thing. Look at Numbers 23.10. Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Here is Balaam, the pagan shaman, looking upon Israel from the outside in. And in a moment of clarity, as the Lord opens his eyes, here he is wishing his end could be the end of the people of Israel. Namely, to be planted on Mount Zion and to live out his days together with the people of God among them in a land flowing with milk and honey. Though not every Israelite was saved eternally, The blessing, which was for the people of Israel, corporately, which each and every one had the opportunity to partake in, was to belong to the people of God whom God had ordained to bless by planting them on Mount Zion in the Promised Land. They could forfeit that by their sin and be struck down prematurely in the wilderness, as we see, in fact, some of them were in Numbers 25 and various other places in Numbers. But the end of the people as a whole, collectively, was to be blessed by God. And here is Balaam the pagan, wistfully looking on and wishing that he could be counted among their number. Which other nation could say that God's declared intent was to bless them. The Egyptians, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, Canaanites. Who can say Yahweh is going to bless us? He's promised to our forefathers. None. Who else did God say 
that He should be their God and that they should be His people. No other nation. So Israel had been chosen by God for blessedness. This is one of the ways that the Bible talks about the concept of election. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, for example, which I read earlier, says that the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The election of Israel to be a people for His treasured possession is one of the ways that the Bible talks about the concept of election. However, it's not the only way that the Bible talks about the concept of election, nor the only type of election that the Bible contains. To understand the relevance of this section of Old Testament narrative for us today, we need to understand, and this brings us to our third point, that the election of Israel in the Old Covenant is not exactly the same as the election of God's saved people in the covenant of grace. But it is nevertheless instructive to us about our own blessed status as God's chosen people. So let me, let me break that statement down because I know that was a mouthful. First, the election of Israel in or unto the old covenant is not exactly the same thing as the election of God's saved people in the covenant of grace. Consider a couple of important differences. For one, the election of Israel was corporate, encompassing each and every descendant of Jacob. There were no Israelites who were not elect because the nation as a whole was elect. If we're talking about the election unto the Old Covenant, right? This differs from election unto salvation in the covenant of grace. One member of a group may be elect, while another is not. Let me break this down. I'm seeing a lot of confused looks, so let me try to break this down a little further. Alright, no, no, no one in Israel had to ask his neighbor, are you in the old covenant? No one had to say, hey, have you been, have you been chosen to partake in the old covenant? Everyone was. Right? You didn't go down the street and say, hey, are you in the Old Covenant? Are you in the Old Covenant? Are you in the Old Covenant? Everyone was. That's what I mean. It was a corporate election. So if you were a descendant of Jacob, you were automatically in the Old Covenant. Alright? Whereas, with respect to the Covenant of Grace, election unto salvation... One member of a group may be elect while another is not. So we could walk down the street in Barbados and say, are you in the covenant of grace? And presumably if people understood what you were talking about and gave you an honest answer, some people would say yes and some people would say no. And so even though we are all collectively a group, and part of the same nation, as it were, there are some within the nation who are elect unto salvation, and there are some who are not. Just as would be the case in modern-day Barbados, so it would have been the case back in ancient Israel. Again, if, some, if people knew what it meant, and 
gave you an honest answer. You, you, you go up to, for example, Korah and Dathan and those guys who rebelled in number 16 and you say, are you in the covenant of grace? Are you saved by virtue of the Messiah? Is he your covenantal representative? And are you an heir of life everlasting? And will you live with him in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells? If Korah and Dathan understood that question and were honest, they would say, no. And yet someone like Moses, for example, or we're about to read in Numbers 25 about Phineas, the zealous priest who stabbed the man in the Moabite woman through with a spear. If you were to ask them, their answer would be, yes. So, election into the Old Covenant was corporate. Everyone was in. Election unto salvation, election into the covenant of grace, is individual. You're not automatically in because you're part of the group. God may make a distinction even within a family with respect to the covenant of grace. Electing to save one and not another. Paul belabors this point in Romans 9, talking about how it's not children of the flesh, but children of the promise who are counted as the true Israel. And he speaks about Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, and though they were in the same womb, part of the same family, both descendants of Abraham, yet one was elect unto salvation in the covenant of grace, and one was not. And in Matthew 10, 34 and following, Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Then what does he say? For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The reality that the scripture puts forward to us is that just because you're part of a certain nation or just because you're part of a certain family, it's not automatic that you're elect unto the covenant of grace. That God is going to bring you into the covenant of grace just because you're part of this group. So election unto salvation in the covenant of grace is individual, not corporate. Whereas election unto the Old Covenant was corporate and encompasses the whole group of Israel's descendants. Which brings us to the second important way that the election of Israel in the Old Covenant or unto the Old Covenant is not exactly the same as the election of God's people, God's saved people in the Covenant of Grace. And that point is simply this, which, which is, has been implied already. The Old Covenant and the covenant of grace are not exactly the same thing. They are related, for sure, but not exactly the same thing. We know that the old covenant taught about salvation by means of a priest and a lamb and a coming king and so forth. And God's gracious condescension to provide these. 
And we know that all of these instructive symbols were fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So there is a relationship between the Old Covenant and the covenant of grace in Christ Jesus in that the Old Covenant teaches and instructs about the covenant of grace. However, it is not itself the same covenant as the covenant Christ mediates. Listen to Hebrews 8 and verse 6, which says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. That passage teaches us that Christ's priesthood is a different priesthood, the covenant Christ mediates is a different covenant, and the promises attached to the covenant that Christ mediates are different promises than the promises of the old covenant. This verse teaches us, therefore, that Christ's covenant, the covenant of grace which saves, is not the same covenant as the old covenant in which each and every one of the old covenant Israelites stood. Now this is, of course, not to say that no one in the old covenant was not also in the covenant of grace. Since, as I said earlier, I take it as obvious that, for example, Moses himself was. Moses was a saved man in the covenant of grace. And he was also in the old covenant, obviously. But I simply, when I say that Christ's covenant, the covenant of grace which saves, is not the same covenant as the old covenant, I simply mean to imply that the old covenant itself did not save. Could you be legitimately in the old covenant and yet perish? Yes. Someone could be legitimately in the old covenant and yet fail to believe savingly in the coming Messiah promised and prophesied explicitly and through types and shadows. And that person could perish. Therefore, being in the old covenant was not in and of itself salvific. Anyone who has ever been saved has been saved by grace through faith in the Messiah and in the covenant that the Messiah mediates. Conversely, and all of this is echoing John Owen, who wrote extensively about this in his commentary on Hebrews. As John Owen said, nobody was damned by the Old Covenant either. Strictly speaking, people who were in the Old Covenant were damned, for sure, but they weren't damned by the Old Covenant. Because strictly speaking, they were damned in Adam before the Old Covenant was ever instituted. So the Old Covenant is related to Christ and teaches about Christ, but it is itself not the same covenant that Christ mediates. It does not damn, for the covenant with Adam damns. It does not save, for the covenant with Christ saves. It is, therefore, the Old Covenant 
an inferior subsidiary covenant, which is simply instructive and concerns temporal blessings for the people of Israel. I covered this in far more detail, uh, honestly, it's probably a couple of years ago now. Seems like just yesterday we've been having so much fun in this Old Covenant series. <laughs> but it's probably been a couple of years ago now. But I was preaching on the nature of the Old Covenant. And you could find those sermons online for a more thorough case. But I hope that this brief overview of the differences between the Old Covenant and the Covenant of Grace is sufficient to make the point that is relevant for our study of Balaam's first oracle tonight. Which is this. The, the election of Israel in the Old Covenant is not exactly the same as the election of God's saved people in the Covenant of Grace. Now, secondly, and, and building on that, it was a blessing to be an Israelite. It was a blessing to be an Israelite, elected as part of that whole to be given the Old Covenant. To be in the Old Covenant was a great blessing. And if it, was in, if it was a blessing to be among the Old Covenant people of God, then how much more is it blessed to be in the Covenant of Grace? If it was a blessing to be in that Old Covenant that Hebrews 8 speaks about, and yet Hebrews 8 tells us that there is another covenant which is better because it is enacted on better promises, how much more is it a blessing to be in that better covenant? Which, Moses was in two, right? Like I said, he was in the Old Covenant, but he was also a saved man, so he was in the Covenant of Grace. Which of these covenants that Moses was in at the same time provided better benefits to Moses? To be among the people who were to be given the Promised Land, or to be among the people who will never perish but have everlasting life? Right? Moses was in both covenants at the same time, but the one contained far better promises than, than the other. And a guy like me, who is a Gentile, living after the coming of Christ Jesus and the abolition of the Old Covenant, is clearly not in the Old Covenant. But I am in the Covenant of Grace. And if I read Numbers 23... And I see that it was blessed to be in the Old Covenant. I can reason, well, how much more blessed must it be then to be in the Covenant of Grace? If I can see this elect people in Numbers 23, and I go, they were, they were chosen for a blessing. And though I haven't been chosen for a blessing in exactly the same way, I have been chosen for a blessing. And the way in which I have been chosen for a blessing, the Bible tells me, is actually better than the way in which they were chosen for a blessing. So how much more blessed is it to be part of that people that I am part of? Maybe God saved people in the covenant of grace. Again, consider what we've seen so often in this Old Testament study, this how much more principle at play. The rescue of the Israelites from Egypt and their journey to the promised land was great. But how much more great is our rescue 
from slavery to sin and our journey, the way God guides us, pilgrims through this barren land and the promised land that He holds out before us. A new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If that was great, how much more great is our exodus and pilgrimage and promised land narrative? If it was great that God would dwell with them in the way that He did then, living in this time and place, post-Pentecost, how much more great is it the way that God dwells among us? If it was great that God provided lambs and priests, and if you're stirred to see Aaron running with a the incense to intercede for the people in the midst of a plague. If that was great, and if that moves your heart, how much more great is it to see Jesus running to intercede for us? And so on and so forth. How much more? How much more? This is what we constantly come back to in this Old Covenant, this Old Testament narrative study, right? As we circle back around them to Balaam's first blessing here upon the nation of Israel. We can't say that we are chosen in exactly the same way as as they were and to the same ends that they were. That we are a people dwelling alone in exactly the same sense that they were and, and that our end is exactly the same as their end. But we can say, look, if Balaam looked upon these people and saw God's gracious, sovereign election of them, though they did not deserve it, and his commitment to bless them, and if he was on the outside looking in and said, oh, to be numbered among those people, and then we look and we say, the way we're chosen is different but better, and the covenant that we're in is different but better, then we can still read Balaam's narrative and go, wow, how blessed to be elect of God, to be chosen for blessedness and how wonderful it would be an unbeliever could say looking in at us so to speak to die the death of the Christians that my end might be theirs right this is this is the way we we ought to connect this it is a glorious thing to belong to Christ in the covenant of grace to have been graciously chosen to be blessed with better blessings than the Old Covenant held out to the people of Israel. And to be led through this wilderness on our way to a better promised land. If it was true that Israel was a particularly chosen and loved and blessed people out of all the peoples of the earth, how much more are we, Jew and Gentile alike, who have been brought into the covenant of grace, How much more are we a particularly chosen and loved and blessed people destined for a glorious end? Not because of our deservedness, but because of the Father's gracious choice and the Son's merit and the Spirit's drawing. We have been called out from among the nations, formed into a people, and God has committed to bless us in spite of the opposition and hostility of the nations around us. There may be modern day Balaks who desire to curse, but no weapon formed against us shall prevail. At least not ultimately, though they may chop off our heads as we saw this morning. We are bound for the promised land. 